0: Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Shabbat Shalom. Before we start, I just want to give a quick uh, shout out to the, our youth worship team. Tomorrow, that final song was amazing. <laughs> Thank you. All the songs were that, would really just struck my heart. Uh, and and uh, Nathan, uh, that prayer. Where are you, Nathan? He's, but uh, maybe he's out, out in the foyer. But uh, I hope you all take to heart uh, his, his exhortation to us to really use this time of worship to, uh, to seek the Lord and, and to cry out to him uh, and to be changed and transformed uh, uh, by being in his presence uh through our, our priests and priestesses and the, and the worship team leading us uh, into his courts. Amen. One other quick preliminary then we'll go ahead and start. Uh there's been a little bit of confusion lately about uh some of the uh requirements and do's and don'ts of the egg So just to be clear just to clarify real quickly, if you bring um, commercially baked goods you bought in a store to our own egg lunch, we have a lone egg lunch every week, uh if it's commercially baked goods, meaning cookies, cakes, pies, donuts, muffins, it has to have a kosher hecksure on it, okay? Because there's a lot of stuff they put in those commercially baked goods uh, we don't know about. You read the ingredients, there's a whole like, chemi- chemistry set of ingredients in there. Some of it's kosher, so some of it's not. It's hard to tell. We don't always know. And so to be safe, if you're baking at home, that's fine. But if you're buying it from a store and it's a baked good, dessert-type good, make sure it has that kosher, heksher uh, symbol uh, on it. Thank you. All right. Enough preliminaries. Uh, Shabbat shalom. We're continuing today in our series on Romans, Book of Romans. Today's part 16, I believe. And I want us to look at today the last part of Romans 9. We began at the first part a couple weeks ago, uh, and the beginning of Romans chapter 10. And so we're going to pick up uh, in Romans 9, 25 from the last time. Romans 9, uh, verse 25. And, and Rob Shaul, the Apostle Paul, says this. Uh, and as, as he, as the Lord says in the book of Hosea, I'll call them my people who are not my people. And I'll call her my beloved who was not my beloved. And it shall come to pass, in the place where it was said of them, you're not my people, there you'll be called sons of the living God. So Paul's quoting here from Isaiah chapters 1 and 2. Hosea, if you recall, he was the prophet from the northern kingdom of Israel, whom God told to marry a prostitute, Gomer, in order to have his life become a vivid 3D picture, a Torah picture, if you will, uh, of God's relationship to Israel. This prostitute was a picture of Israel who had spiritually uh, uh, prostituted herself uh, to foreign gods and idols and debauched living and and pagan practices. God had married himself to Israel, but Israel had wantonly, defiantly cheated on him time and time again. And so Isaiah's marriage to Gomer becomes a picture of God's relationship to Israel. On the first is Mosaic 2.23, and and it's a prediction. Uh, But here's where many people get confused. God says through Hosea, I'll call them my people who who were not my people. Uh, And we think, yes, God's now talking about uh, the Gentiles. This is a prophecy that God's going to bring the Gentiles into his covenant. Those who are not God's people will become God's people. But that's not actually what Hosea is saying here in context. This is a prophecy about Israel, not the Gentiles. In Hosea, God says to Israel, you're no longer my people. But then he prophesies a future time when he'll take them back and, and restore them. And once again, they'll be his people. So God says, Israel, you'll be dismissed because of your sin, but then you'll be brought back in. You'll be broken off, but then you'll be grafted back in, and I'll restore you to myself. And here's where some anti-missionaries try to attack the New Testament. They'll say, this is a prophecy about Israel, but Paul's twisting it here to apply it to the Gentiles in Romans chapter 9. Paul's using it to say the Gentiles will now become God's people, But that's not what the text really means. Paul's misusing our Hebrew scriptures, they claim. Well, in reality, not at all. Throughout the Tanakh, the Hebrew scriptures, the Gentiles are prophesied to come into and become part of God's people. So, for example, look at Isaiah 49, verse 6. The Lord says, it's too small a thing for you, Israel, alone to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob. Yes, I'll bring back a remnant of Israel, but I'll also make you a light to the Gentiles, to the nations, to the Goyim, that my salvation will reach the ends of the earth. So this is one of the the servant songs of Isaiah, uh, these prophecies that are fulfilled in the Messiah. So the Hebrew scriptures make it clear that God will make the Gentiles his people too, in addition to Israel. But Paul's point in Romans 9 is even a little bit different than that. Uh, Remember, Romans 9, 10, and 11, this is a unit. He's especially addressing here in this unit a Jewish audience. Here's the point. When he quotes extensively from the Tanakh, from the Hebrew Scriptures, like he's doing now, he especially has his fellow Jews in mind that he's writing to in Rome in order to persuade them of the gospel truths. In Hosea, the prophet describes Israel as going from being God's people to not being God's people to once again being God's people. Uh, So we learn an important principle here that Paul's now going to be applying in Romans 9, 10, and 11. And the principle is this. God can make not God's people, whether Jew or Gentile, into God's people. And Paul was brilliantly using Hosea to prove this so that his Jewish audience will say, yes, although God may have cast us off, he will bring us back. His promises have not failed. Now, Paul is using this principle to explain how God can graft in the Gentiles, too, to make them who are not God's people into God's people. So will God cast off Israel forever? Paul says, no, may it never be, not forever. Again, quoting Hosea. But just like in Hosea, due to their disobedience and their unbelief, God set them aside for a time until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And then he promises all Israel shall be saved. And until that time, God promises to preserve a remnant from within his chosen people. Guess who that is? The Messianic Jews. That's us. And just like with Hosea, what happened before in the Tanakh is now happening again in the New Covenant scriptures. Same principle. So what's Paul's strategy here? He's using the Old Testament examples to establish New Testament truths. He's showing us that God's current dealings with Israel are biblically grounded. And that's why Paul is emphasizing here in Romans 9 that the word of God has not failed. Israel, do not despair. The word of God has not failed. Paul believes everything in the Tanakh. He is 100% biblically Jewish. He never abandoned his faith. Now, in contrast, rabbinic Judaism is not 100% biblically Jewish. It's not really based on on the biblical text, but it's based on on tradition. After the year 70, the rabbis reimagined a Judaism without temple or priesthood or sacrifice. And they had to therefore deny or explain away or reinterpret all all the prophecies relating to Yeshua's first coming. So, for example, Daniel 9 says Messiah must come before the destruction of the temple in the year 70 A.D. The rabbis don't know what to do with this prophecy, so number one, they say the prophecy in essence has failed, uh, and that our sins delayed him, as if we can surprise or if we can thwart the will of God. Uh, and number two, they've actually forbidden the Jewish people from calculating the seventy weeks of Daniel. It's against against forbidden law to try and calculate the date. So Paul is being very strategic here in applying in appealing now to our Jewish people here in Romans nine by using key passages from the Torah and the prophets, uh, just as the passages we looked at last time, uh, about Pharaoh and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and God not choosing Ishmael or Esau, all the passages his fellow Jews would readily agree with. And now he's quoting Hosea, uh, and, and to, uh, to show how these past examples of Israel being God's people, and then not God's people, and then brought back to be God's people again. So again, there's a principle here, Paul says. We can learn from Hosea. God can make not God's people into God's people. And he can also bring the Gentiles into. And Paul's using these Torah, Paul's using these Torah texts about, about Isaac, not Ishmael, about Jacob, not Esau, to show that God did not choose them based upon their blood or their heritage or, or their good works. And then Paul applies these principles about corporate national identity he applies them to our individual salvation as well. Our salvation is not based on our ethnicity or or rituals or good deeds or even Torah observance, but it's based on God's grace through faith. And it's always been only a remnant who exercised that faith. Again, Paul brilliantly is using the Old Testament to establish New Testament truths as we saw last time, God hardened Pharaoh as a judgment due to Pharaoh's own sinful, stubborn heart, judicial hardening. And all of Paul's Jewish audience says, yes, that's right, Pharaoh deserved it. And then Paul turns to his unbelieving Jewish audience, and he says, in the same way, could not God harden some of you? It's a brilliant argument. And now at the end of chapter 9, Paul's explaining that with the coming of the Messiah, uh, God's evening out the playing field between the Jews and the Gentiles. All are equally condemned, and all can equally be saved by trusting in Yeshua. Look at Romans 9, verse 27, next verse. Isaiah, first he used Hosea, now he's using Isaiah. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, though the number of Israelites be like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on the earth with speed and finality. Just as Isaiah had said previously, Unless the Lord Almighty had left us seed, had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like, like Gomorrah. So Isaiah speaks here of this concept of the remnant, which is a consistent concept throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, throughout the Tanakh, throughout the Torah and the Prophets and the Writings. We see a large number of Israelites who are not following the Lord, and only a small number who are. And Paul picks this up, this theme up throughout Romans 9, 10, and 11. explain why many Jews in Paul's days had rejected the Messiah, uh, and why God's promises, however, have not failed. So even today, many of our people today say, why should I believe in Yeshua as the Messiah when the majority of, of my fellow Jews have rejected him? But Paul answers that objection here, and he explains that even back in the Tanakh, it was only a remnant who actually ever believed and followed the Lord. So taking a popular vote was never the answer to whether something was true or not. And that's why God had to keep sending these prophets, because the majority, even the majority of Israel's political and spiritual leaders, would repeatedly go astray. So Paul quotes here from Isaiah that only the remnant will be saved. And this was always the case in both the Tanakh and in the New Covenant. That's why Yeshua says it in Matthew 7, verse 13, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. So again, in quoting Isaiah, Paul is brilliantly appealing to his Jewish audience by using Old Testament scripture to confirm New Testament truth. And that's and this that points out a powerful but yet overlooked strategy that we need to use today in Jewish evangelism. The most effective tool in reaching our people with the gospel, ironically, is the new testament itself. Because it's living and it's active and it's powerful because it's the word of God. It's the fulfillment of all the old testament prophecies and shadows and types and it is a thoroughly Jewish book. Now, yes, it's been mischaracterized in the past as, as somehow anti Jewish and misused in history by anti Semites who triumphantly twisted it to claim that God had now replaced Israel with the church. But, but properly understood and reclaimed in its original first century context, the New Covenant is a thoroughly Jewish book written by Jews about God's promise to the Jewish people of a Jewish Messiah as prophesied in the Jewish scriptures. The New Testament completely endorses and affirms everything written in the Hebrew Scriptures. And in fact, quotes the Hebrew Scriptures hundreds, if not thousands of times. I know a Jewish person who was told by his rabbi that the New Testament was actually a handbook on how to persecute Jews. He was told never to read it, which of course made him want to read it all the more. (laughs) So he opens it up. At uh, the very, very beginning of the New Testament, the, the book of Matthew, what does he see? Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. This is the genealogy of Yeshua the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And he sees right at the very beginning, this is a Jewish book that Matthew is presenting Yeshua as what? As the king of the Jews, as the king of Israel. Yeshua is called the son of David, this messianic term, the prophesied Jewish Messiah who fulfills all the Jewish prophecies. And he keeps reading and reading. He sees the New Testament is written by Jews. And the Gentiles are visitors, if you will, grafted into the natural olive branch of Israel. And therefore, the most natural thing in the world is for Jews to embrace Yeshua, the Jewish Messiah. And so ironically, the, most, the greatest and most powerful witness to our people is the New Testament. Do not shy away from it. And it, const- it, it itself constantly relies upon and affirms the teachings and, qu- and by quoting extensively from the Hebrew Scriptures. And now, Gentiles who have no background in, 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 in the Hebrew Scriptures, who just start reading New Testament only, they miss all of this. They don't understand or appreciate all these intricate connections to the Tanakh. But to the Jewish mind who knows the Hebrew Scriptures, when they now read the New Testament, they'll see all these threads connecting. Why? Because it's all really just one book. And you wouldn't start reading a book three-fourths of the way through, would you? And hope to understand what's going on. Uh, In the same way, you need to read the Hebrew scriptures, thoroughly understand the new covenant, and avoid lots of errors that the church has historically made. So why did many of our people not receive Yeshua? Well, that's confirmed in the Old Testament as well. It's always been only a remnant. Uh, that believed and embraced the promises of God. Isaiah 10, verse 22. The number of Israelites be like the sand of the sea, Isaiah says, God says through Isaiah, only a remnant will be saved. Indeed, almost every one of Israel's prophets were rejected in their day. It was only much later, typically after their death, that they were embraced. And the same with the Messiah. Romans 9, verse 30. What then shall we say? that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that's by faith. But Israel, who pursued the Torah as the way of righteousness, have not attained their goal. Notice the sharp contrast here. There's those who attain to righteousness because they sought it by faith, and those who do not because they sought it by the works of the law. So Paul here, he's making a contrast between the Gentiles who are righteous by faith And the Jews who failed to attain it, why? Because they sought a righteousness based on their own obedience, actually alleged obedience to the Torah, because no one fully obeys it from the heart, which is Yeshua's whole point in the Sermon on the Mount. So even today, the emphasis of Orthodox Judaism, if you study it, uh, is on outward observances and external rituals. Uh, For example, um, how meticulously do you observe the no-work rule of Shabbat with its over 10,000 rabbinic ordinances? What clothes do you daily wear? What do you eat? How do you wash your hands before you eat? Uh, how often do you lay to tefillin? Uh, the prayers you recite. How flawless is your etrog on Sukkot? Uh, how well did you read your home of Hamatz at, at Pesach? Now, what do all these things have in common? They're all merely external observances, which you can fulfill perfectly and yet still have an evil, sinful, prideful, greedy, lustful, bitter, unforgiving, judgmental heart. You can strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. You can be a beautiful, whited sepulcher on the outside, but inside be full of dead man's bones. Matthew 23, 28, Yeshua says, In the same way, on the outside, you appear righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. You can tie mint and dill and cumin and neglect the weightier matters of the law. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. And that's why Yeshua says in Mark 7, verse 20, what comes out of you is what defiles you. Why? From, 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 from within, out of your heart, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, Murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, folly. All these evils come from within and defile you. And that's why our people could pursue righteousness but not attain it. Because they pursued the law as the way to righteousness. And they never kept the law the way they thought they had. That's why Yeshua says in Matthew 5.20, for I tell you. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the Torah teachers, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And Paul consistently says throughout the book of Romans that salvation is by God's grace through trusting in Messiah Yeshua and not by your own works of righteousness and mitzvot and Torah observance. So Israel has not attained her goal. Romans 9.31. Why not? Because they pursued it, not by faith, because, as it were, by works. Torah observance is great. The law is holy and righteous and good. But it is not the means of earning one's salvation. Rather, it becomes the fruit, the demonstration of having saving faith. One of the problems we have today in understanding this is that in the English, our word faith is just a noun. It's not a verb. There's no action connected with it. Not so in the Hebrew. In Hebrew, the word emunah, faith, comes from the verb aman, which means uh, uh, to be supported, uh, to prove oneself reliable, to have stability, to remain, to continue, to rely on. And the related forms of this verb means to be faithful, to be trustworthy. So in the Hebrew, believing, having faith, and being faithful are all related. Thus in the Hebrew, emunah, faith, Does not mean merely, does not describe merely someone who's convinced that something is true. But rather it's someone who's, the word emunah in Hebrew means someone who's who's reliable, who's honest, who's steady, who's trustworthy, who's faithful. Faith transforms your character. Thus, Hebraically, faith, true biblical faith, saving faith, means to be reliable, to be faithful. It does not merely mean to agree with or to be convinced of a certain proposition. So when Paul, as a devout Jew, speaks of faith in Yeshua, he includes automatically the sense of faithfulness, not merely agreeing something is true or being convinced of the truth. Yeshua, Paul, the apostles, they never spoke of a situation where someone was accredited with having faith, but whose life did not evidence faithfulness. That's why Yeshua always talked about seeing your faith. Isn't that kind of an odd concept, seeing your faith? Look at Matthew 8.10. And when Yeshua heard heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, truly I say to you, I've not seen such great faith in all Israel. Or Matthew 9, verse 2. And behold, they were bringing in this man, this paralytic, lying on a mat, and seeing their faith. Yeshua said to him, take courage, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, how can Yeshua see their faith if faith was merely intellectual consent, something inside your brain? Obviously here, Yeshua saw what? He saw their outward acts of faithfulness, demonstrating their inward faith. He saw the centurion come to him and say say to Yeshua, just say the word and my servant will be well. He saw the friends of the paralytic bring him up on the roof, and lower him down through the roof, Yeshua saw their faith in action. So put that on the overhead. Hebraically, biblically, faith does not exist merely as a hidden thought in your heart. Believing, and the fruits of this belief, are so inextricably bound together that one cannot exist apart from the other. So again, um, on the overhead here. Yeshua could speak of of their genuine faith someone has. Why? Because that faith is demonstrated by his or her actions. We have lost that understanding today. We've got it on the overhead as well. Today, to have faith means just you're convinced of something, apart from any outward action. But in Hebrew, that's impossible. Hebraically, the internal mental activity of genuine faith always, always, always shows itself in outward obedience. On I'm on the overhead as well. So faith and faithfulness are bound together like two sides of the same coin. Now the Yeshua or Paul, the apostles, they would, would have ever can even consider it possible to genuinely believe but live a life of faithlessness. Biblically, true faith issues in faithfulness as much as the rising sun brings the daylight. You cannot separate the two. So, can you be saved by raising your hand uh, at an evangelical meeting or answering an altar call uh, to come forward? Or does one only have the assurance of salvation when his life demonstrates faithfulness? Yeah, I would say it's possible you've entered into a true covenant relationship with God through submission to and acceptance of the truth uh, that you've received. But this is evident in a conclusive way only when your life manifests faithfulness, which must proceed forth from true, genuine, saving faith. So if your life today is not characterized by God's righteousness, no assurance of true faith exists in you. And Paul and the rest of the New Testament makes it clear that faith must be what? It must be in God's provision, God's anointed, God's one and only means of atonement, Yeshua the Messiah. Romans 9.32. They stumble over the stumbling stone, as it's written. Again, he's quoting now again from from Isaiah. lay in Zion, a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. But the one who believes in him will not be put to shame. So the question Paul is addressing here is, why are we Jews failing to attain, my fellow Jews, failing to attain to God's righteousness? The Jews are saying, look how hard we work to, to please God, uh, how zealous we are for the Torah. And Paul says, the, the answer is because you failed to pursue it through faith in Yeshua. Indeed, they pursued it through their own self-righteousness, uh, through faith plus, faith plus being a member of the Abrahamic covenant, faith plus the works of the Torah. You know, In the same way, Catholicism teaches that salvation is not by faith alone, Catholicism teaches faith is, is salvation by faith plus, faith plus works of obedience, faith plus the sacraments, faith, faith plus communion and baptism and confession to a priest and prayers to the saints. In fact, a few years ago, the Pope announced a special year of indulgences that if you attend, attended certain events where he was teaching, he would grant you what's called a plenary, a plenary indulgence to forgive all your sins, So your sins were forgiven, he says, through your works of attending these events where I'm speaking at. And then he says, Well, what if you can't come to me? You can't come to Rome or wherever I'm speaking. I'll make it easy on you. The Pope said, I'll also give you one of these indulgences if you follow me on Twitter. (laughs) Now, to those of us who know that Yeshua had to die on the cross to forgive us our sins, this is pathetic. This is blasphemous. As if Twitter following could earn some type of divine grace or forgiveness. Now, uh, here in Romans 9.23, Paul is quoting two different passages from Isaiah. And he combines these two passages together. Can someone turn that off, please? Oh, it's a car. Okay, never mind. Uh Paul, it's Paul he, was quoting, he was combining these two passages of Isaiah together based on having common words or themes, which is a very rabbinic practice. And why? Because Paul was a Pharisee. Uh, he, was a, he was rabbinic. Uh, the rabbis had a name for this common exegetical technique. We'll put it on the overhead. It's called Gezara, Gezara Shavah. It means the linking of two texts by a common word. In this case, the word stone. Yeah, the stone, the stone the builders rejected, the stone became the cornerstone. So Paul uses Isaiah eight fourteen and Isaiah twenty eight sixteen. He combines them together in a very typical rabbinic fashion, very very Jewish. What Paul is doing uh, to drive home a point. Uh, Isaiah eight fourteen, he'll be a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel and a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Uh, the he here is a reference to God. God will be the sanctuary. God will also be the stone of stumbling. So for Paul, now, what, what is Paul doing? Don't, don't miss this. For Paul, now, to apply this verse about God to a Yeshua is a very strong proclamation that Yeshua, Paul is saying, Yeshua is God in the flesh. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And with the contrast here, within the verse of Isaiah eight fourteen. God will either be a sanctuary or a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense how? When? Based on your faithfulness or lack thereof to him. In the same way, Paul is now saying Yeshua will be the sanctuary if you receive him, but the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense uh, if you reject him. And then he goes to the next verse. He's combining these verses together with Gizras Shavad, this this, he, um, this very Jewish technique. Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. He who believes on him will not be put to shame. Paul combines these two passages to show that Yeshua is the cornerstone, is the foundation. But if you reject him, he becomes the stone of stumbling. Indeed, this passage in Isaiah 28, 16, 16 by the way, has always been seen messianically. So, for example, if it's on the overhead, the, tar- the Aramaic the Jonathan, translates stone in Isaiah 28, As king. So in the the targum it actually reads like this. Behold, I lay in Zion a king, a mighty king. I'll strengthen and uphold him. That's the classic Aramaic uh, understanding in the rabbinic paraphrase. Isaiah 28, 16, Tanakh says, God himself will lay in Zion a stone, a foundation stone, a cornerstone. And Isaiah 8, 14 equates this with the sanctuary, right, with the temple. And then there's, a, there's a great mid, uh, rabbinic midrash on Isaiah 28, 16. Also equates the cornerstone uh, with the temple. And now what is Paul doing? Paul is picking up on this imagery. And I think deliberately, uh, I'm sorry, Yeshua now himself is picking up on this imagery. And I think deliberately declaring himself to be the temple. And Yeshua is relating back to this imagery that all the Jews in his day would have known. So he says in John 2:19, destroy this temple. And I'll raise it again in three days. But the temple he spoke of was his body. So Paul's saying this messianic stone in Isaiah 28 is the stone also of Isaiah 8, uh, which is the sanctuary, which is the temple, which is Yeshua. He says, raise this temple of my body in three days. And in combining these two texts, just as Isaiah foretold that the house of Israel and the house of Judah will stumble over the stone, Paul says that our people likewise stumbled over the stone. Which is Yeshua, who is Emmanuel, who's God with us, who is the temple made flesh. And the same we see this very same theme in Psalm one eighteen, uh, verse twenty-two, very famous verse. The stone the builders rejected is become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this. It's marvelous in our eyes. And yet Paul will drive home in Romans eleven, not all Israel has stumbled. Uh, the remnant through God's grace and mercy are brought near. And through their faith. And therefore they're not ashamed, as Isaiah says, to Isaiah 28:16. He who believes on him shall not be ashamed. Isaiah uh, 28, 16, put them the overhead. Uh, so you now see how Paul is pulling, pulling together all these Old Testament texts uh, in a unified way uh, to proclaim Yeshua. Uh, he literally teaches throughout the, throughout the Hebrew scriptures that just like Yeshua did on the road to Emmaus. He's showing forth the person and the work of Messiah through all these Hebrew scriptures he's bringing together. And indeed, without seeing the fulfillment in the New Covenant, much of the Tanakh does not make sense. So we need to pray and to share the gospel that the veil over our people's eyes may be removed. Which brings us now to chapter 10. Look at verse ten, verse, uh, Romans 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Notice Paul's heart for the salvation of his people. And he also prays in confidence. Why? Because he knows that God's promises for Israel's salvation are surely to come to pass. So for example, we see in Zechariah 12, 13, 14, and in many other places, the the, the promise of Israel's salvation. And he knows that their current hardening is only partial. It's not permanent. Uh, So Paul's prayer should be an example for us how we should be praying, how we should be sharing our faith with everyone, but especially to our fellow Jews. The enemy does not want you to pray. The enemy does not want you to preach the gospel because he knows how powerful and effective it is when you pray and when you share your faith. Here's one quick example uh, from the book of Acts, Acts 18. Paul goes to Corinth. After preaching there, they kick him out of the synagogue. He's preaching in the synagogue. They kick him out. But the ruler of the synagogue, Crispus, uh, gets saved. He and his whole household. And they become Messianic Jews. So the synagogue kicks Paul out, uh, kicks Crispus out, and they have to get a new ruler of the synagogue. They get a guy named Sosthenes. Sosthenes. Sosthenes, the new ruler, then tries to get Paul in trouble. But it backfires. If you, if you read Acts chapter 18, Sosthenes ends up getting beaten up by the crowd. So this is the new ruler of the synagogue. Uh, he heard Paul speak. He hardened his heart. He rejected Yeshua. But then later on, when Paul writes a letter to the Corinthians, look at 1 Corinthians 1.1. 1, 1. Paul called to be an apostle of Messiah Yeshua by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. How cool is that? This guy, Sosthenes, got saved. He ends up traveling with Paul, helping him in his ministry. And Paul mentions Sosthenes here in the first verse of, the, of chapter 1 of his letter because he's known by all his fellow Corinthians. So can a hardened heart come to Yeshua? Yes. Do not stop praying for your Lord unsaved loved ones and acquaintances. Be encouraged. Let me exhort you that we need to be about our Father's business. What was Yeshua's whole mission? Luke 19, verse 10, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. But if we're honest, most of us have grown apathetic to our primary mission And calling. So we need to humbly admit our own lukewarm hearts for evangelism. We need to repent and ask Yeshua for a fresh anointing of his fiery passion and a broken heart for the lost and especially our brethren, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Yes, most of Israel is currently blind to the Lord. But the Great Commission says it's God's plan to lift that blindness. And he says it's his plan to lift that blindness through us. And Yeshua says in John 20, 21, As the Father has sent me, even so I send you. We are called to be the light of the world. A city set on a hill. Yeshua says Matthew 5, 16, In the same way that your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. The problem isn't that no, none of our people are opened. You know, Sosthenes, he wasn't open at first, but God changed his heart. The problem is that so few of us are proclaiming the gospel. Matthew nine thirty-seven. Then Yeshua said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray therefore to the Lord of the harvest, to send out workers into his harvest. As Chaim, the time has come for us in obedience to Messiah to fall on our face before the Lord in fervent prayer, to cry out to the Lord of the harvest, to send out laborers into his harvest. Let me tell you there's one catch. We are the answer to that prayer. We are the laborers. If we want the kingdom of God to grow and our people to return to their Messiah, remember Second Corinthians 9, 6, he who sows sparingly also reaps sparingly. He who sows bountifully, though, will reap bountifully. So like Paul, we need to be broken over our, the spiritual lostness of our people and pray fervently for their salvation uh, and be bold and faithful in sharing our faith. Romans 10, 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved, for I can testify about them that they're zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Unlike most secular people, including most secular Jews today, Paul says his fellow Jews back in his day, they had a real zeal for God. But yet Paul says they're not saved. So what does this tell us? that zeal alone is not enough. Being religious alone is not enough. Being Torah observant and Orthodox alone is not enough. Because these are the very people Paul's talking about who fall short of God's righteousness. The Jews in Paul's day, on one level, the Jews in Paul's day, they were zealously committed to the one true God, the God of Israel. But they rejected God's plan for their salvation and they sought instead instead to establish their own righteousness. God does not forgive your sins because you're passionate and sincere and committed to your religion. That's why Paul says back in Romans 9, 16, so it does not depend on him who wills or him who runs, but on God who has mercy. Paul's talking about his fellow Jews here. They're the ones who willed and who ran. His fellow Jews had a strong, zealous will for God. They were intent, though, on doing it their way. That's in their zeal, their zealous will. Uh, and they ran with zeal. Uh, they were zealous for Torah mitzvot and for traditions and for ritual purity. But salvation is not based on your will, your zeal, or how you much you run uh, on your works. It doesn't work that way. Rather, it's based on submission to God's promises and his provision in Messiah Yeshua. So Paul says, my fellow Zeus... Jews' zeal was not according to knowledge. And this can also be said for many other groups today, right? Uh, Muslims, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, anyone who either adds to or takes away from the gospel of God and, and salvation by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Yeshua alone, as revealed in the scriptures alone. Because as Isaiah says, all of our righteousness are like filthy rags in God's sight. So we need to humble ourselves and to repent and be clothed in the righteousness of Yeshua. Romans 10.3, since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. This is the essence of legalism, trying to use my righteousness to attain righteousness before God. And Yeshua went out of his way to show the religious leaders that in their legalism, ironically, they ignored God's actual standards. So, for example, in Matthew 23, put this thing overhead Yeshua rebukes the scribes and he rebukes the Pharisees not because they were too strict, but because they weren't strict enough. Because they focused on the easy outward commands and ignored the deeper commands of the Torah, the deeper, deeper commands of the heart. Matthew 23, uh, 23. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, Torah teachers, hypocrites. For you pay tithe of mint and dill and cumin, but have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Now, note that Yeshua did not rebuke them for, for, because they scrupulously tithe mint and dill and cumin. In fact, Yeshua agrees with them and says it should not be ignored. He, he, he said that was good. We should love God so much that we want to tithe everything back to him as an act of worship. But in tithing all these spices, does it make me kind of feel righteous when I do that? Does it make me feel superior to others who, who aren't so scrupulous as I am? That's the problem. In doing so, I'm neglecting the far weightier matters, humility, meekness, love, justice, mercy, faithfulness. God is far more interested in having these deep character traits, these fruits of the spirit, uh, uh, rather than these relatively minor outward details of the law. And because they're focused, they focus on such uh, minor minutiae, Yeshua goes on to call the scribes and Pharisees blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. And then he says this in in Matthew 23-25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You cleanse the outside of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. The Pharisee's method... Which actually resulted in lowering God's standards was to focus on the trivial outward things rather than on the deeper matters of the heart and God's holiness. Yeshua says you're focused on all these trivial external things, uh, uh, like the shape and the, and the length of your tzitzit and, and your tefillin, certain outward rules of, of rituals about washings and Shabbat prohibitions and other minutiae. You've neglected the deeper character issues of love and mercy and holiness that God is calling you to. And we see this on the Sermon on the Mount as well. Yeshua trying to bring us back to the deeper issues of the law, to the true original intent of the Torah. Look at Matthew 5.19. Whoever therefore breaks the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so will be called least in, in the kingdom of heaven. Whatever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say unto you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the Torah teachers, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now the Jews in Paul's day, they saw the Pharisees and the Torah teachers as the epitome of righteousness. But Yeshua is saying it's the wrong kind. 1 Samuel 16, 7. The Lord does not look on the things that men look at. For man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then he sure contrasts the popular understanding of Torah, you've heard that it was said, with his standard, but I say unto you. And he focuses on what in Matthew 5, 6, and 7? These key issues of anger, hatred, lust, divorce, unforgiveness, truthfulness, loving even your enemies. And he shows what the Torah really says about each of these key issues. Don't be sure, he focuses on our hearts. Therefore, he equates hatred with murder uh, and lust uh, with adultery. Why? Because God looks on the heart, not just on mere outward appearance and observance. Yeshua says, cleanse the inside of the cup. Six times in the book of Leviticus, God commands us to be holy even as he is holy. Which we can never do on our own. We need His Spirit residing within us, which Yeshua promises to send to all who truly believe. So we end up condemning ourselves, Paul says. We say the law is true and good and holy and just, but then we don't really follow it from our heart, from the inside out. The Torah is like a mirror. You gaze into it, and it shows you all your flaws. But the problem, Paul's saying here in Romans 10, is that his fellow Jews were instead using the Torah uh, to boast about their own righteousness. It's like those new phone apps. Have you seen them? Where you can enhance your image, uh, make yourself look better than you really are. Tricks on the app, kind of like Photoshop on steroids. (laughs) And we, Paul's saying, we use religion just like that. We project a false image out to the world. That's what Paul's saying here in Romans 10. Our fellow Jews rejected God's righteousness based on faith in God's provision and instead sought to establish their own righteousness based on their own flawed view of Torah observance. So we either can try to impress God with how religious we are or we can fall on our face and repent and cry out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then finally, last verse, Romans ten four for messiah is the goal of the torah so there may be righteousness for everyone who believes now context here is paul has just discussed how his fellow jews inappropriately sought to establish their own righteousness by way, their way of of their their way of thinking about torah observance so now he opens this verse with the word for to explain that the, the whole goal though the whole purpose and culmination though, of the torah is the messiah yeshua Indeed, Yeshua is on every page of the Torah. He even told the Pharisees in, in John 5, 39, you search the scriptures diligently because you think that in them is eternal life. But these are the very scriptures that testify of me. That you refuse to come to me and have life. The Hebrew scriptures all speak of Yeshua. He is the goal to which the Torah points. Now, note here, a lot of translations, a lot of modern English translations here say that Messiah is the end of the law, as if he terminated or nullified it. The proper translation is that he's the goal or purpose of the law, because the Torah and the prophets all point to and testify of him. In fact, even the very famous Protestant Reformation leader, John Calvin, himself wrote this. We'll put it on the overhead. He says, this remarkable passage, Romans 10, 4, declares that the law in all its parts has reference to the Messiah. And therefore no one will be able to, will, able to understand it correctly who doesn't constantly strive to retain this mark. This is Calvin's commentary on Romans. So even Calvin says, sees that the Torah is the goal, uh, is the, Messiah is the goal to which the Torah points. And as further proof here that Paul is saying Messiah is the goal of the Torah, not the end of the Torah. Look right back at Romans 7:12. Paul just got done saying that the Torah is holy and righteous and good. In Romans seven fourteen he says it's spiritual, and then in Romans, then very next chapter, Romans eight, verse four, he says, the righteous requirements of the Torah are worked out in us. We live out the Torah, who, who live not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So he's, he's exhorting us to live out the Torah. And then finally, Romans three thirty-one, Paul says this Do we then nullify the Torah by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the Torah. Paul wants us to understand that when life in Yeshua is properly lived out in us, the Torah is established, not nullified. Therefore, it'd be totally contradictory for Paul now all of a sudden to say that in Messiah the Torah is ended or terminated. Moreover, Paul goes on in Romans 10, 11, the whole rest of the book of Romans, to extensively quote time and again from the Torah and from the Tanakh to substantiate all of his points, all of his teachings. So this makes it clear that, that Paul considers the Torah the living and abiding and eternal word of God. And the standard that should govern the life of every believer. In the 2nd Timothy, what does Paul says? 316, Paul says this: all scripture is God breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So the Torah is not nullified in Messiah, just the opposite. It points you to the Messiah uh, and through its perfect standard shows us our sin and our need for a redeemer. It convicts us of sin. It drives us to Yeshua, our final atonement. When we have eyes to see, the Torah shows us our sin is far greater than we ever dared to believe it was. But that same Torah now shows us the answer in the suffering servant, the Messiah, who died for our sins. So we see Messiah foreshadowed throughout the sacrificial system, the the blood sacrifices, the Torah, the, the, the priesthood, the tabernacle, the temple. Yeshua carries the weight of our sins because you could not carry that weight and I could not carry that weight. In all of this, the Torah brings me to my knees in repentance to seek the grace of God through his provision in the death and resurrection of Yeshua. And for we who are Yeshua followers, filled with his spirit, the Torah daily bids me to become holy, even as God himself is holy. In keeping his commands in the power of his spirit, you find joy that comes to righteous living. And you see where you fall short, the Torah therefore constantly drives us to daily seek God's mercy and his grace. Which he freely gives you in his son, Yeshua. Walking in God's righteous standards is thus at the very same time both richly rewarding and convicting. And it constantly is therefore pointing you back to Yeshua, the Messiah. As you listen to and you live out the teachings of God, it lifts up Messiah because he is the goal to which I wish it all points. Amen. Hallelujah. Let's stand and pray. And I want the music team to come back up, please. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Let's all stand. Hallelujah. Lord, we Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your holy scriptures, the Torah, the prophets, the writings, which far from being done away with, Lord, the new covenant, which says, He writes that you write the Torah on our hearts. So help us to be in your word daily. Let it be the righteous standard to show us our sin, to drive us to our knees as we see. How far short we fall. And then let us drive us, let it drive us to you, Yeshua, as we see you on every page. For The goal of the Torah is truly you, Messiah Yeshua. So Lord, increase our faith. We pray for true biblical faith that always issues forth in faithfulness. Help us to be doers of your word, Lord, where well, our faith is not some kind of mere intellectual uh, assent, but it's life-changing transformation that makes us faithful, trustworthy people. And help us, Lord, to major in the majors and the the weightier matters of the law. We're forming our inner character in our hearts so that our daily life exhibits your fruits of your spirit, your love and joy and peace, your patience and kindness, your goodness and faithfulness, your gentleness and self-control. For though we men, we look on the outward appearance, we know that you, Lord, you look on the heart. So, Lord, purify our hearts from everything that would defile us. And finally, Lord, help us to be about the most important business of all, your business. You told us you have come to seek and to save the lost, and especially the lost sheep of the house of Israel, your people. Help us, Lord, to be faithful laborers in your great harvest field of souls. Help us to say, He Hineni, Lord, here I am, send me. Lord, give me, give us all divine appointments this week and the boldness and the faith to share your life-giving, life-saving gospel. Help us not to be ashamed of your gospel because we know it's the power of salvation for all who believe, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. And we pray this all in your name, Yeshua. Amen. So, about Shalom.